Cam warn you. Yes. Uh, I had an emergency bottle of soju. <laughs> what constitutes an emergency that requires soju as the solution? Uh, I don't know. It just seemed like a really good idea because it was a very warm day and I was sitting outside and I decided that, oh, I have this extra bottle of soju in the fridge. Why don't I crack it open? <laughs> Which was probably a very bad idea. I don't know how anybody drinks more than one bottle because there is no way that I should be anywhere other than where I'm sitting right now. When you say one bottle, you mean in total in their lifespan, not in one sitting. Uh, <laughs> if you've never had soju, and it is available at the LCBO and other fine liquor stores across this country, um, yeah, you'll understand exactly how powerful it can be. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Leo Fender, the world's most famous guitar maker who actually couldn't play a lick on the guitar. We'll introduce you to the author of The Quiet Giant Heard Around the World, Randy Bell and his muse, Phyllis Fender. Phyllis tells us why the Fender guitar is considered the rock and roll legend that it is and how the engineer with a glass eye caught her eye. Whatever happened to the serial number 001 of all of those iconic guitars? We've got the answer, and if you're looking to pick one up yourself, you're gonna be disappointed. Plus, we're giving away this week a Google Home. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. In 1946, an engineer with a glass eye and a love of photography started the Fender Electric Instrument Manufacturing Company in Fullerton, California. And the rest is rock and roll history. From the broadcaster to the stratocaster and a slew of amps in between, the story of Leo Fender is told in the pages of The Quiet Giant Heard Around the World, written by Randy Bell and the late Leo Fender's second wife, Phyllis. They join us high atop the Marconi Tower in the GNB studios from the Fender family home in Fullerton, California. Hello. Hello. I will begin with a question I've been dying to ask. Is it true that Leo never knew how to play the guitar? You got it there. He didn't even know how to tune one much less play it. Okay, so how does this happen? How does a man who doesn't know how to play the instrument become the name behind one of the most famous musical instrument brands in the history of the universe? Almost everyone in the plant uh, played guitars. They were in bands, big bands, little bands, uh, just, just by themselves, but almost everybody played. So whenever he had an idea and they would make one up, uh, they would play it for him, and if he liked it, then he was a success. But uh, no, he uh, he just surrounded his people with musicians, and that was uh, that was the best he could do. 
So, so he was the, the, the head of the factory, he was the, the bankroller, he was the employer, but he wasn't the person that would sit down and say, okay, I'm going to cut out this shape of a guitar and we are going to call it the Stratocaster. <laughs> well, he, he had all of the dreams and the ideas, but he also had a wonderful plant full of good workers. What came first, the guitar or the amplifier, or did they come at the same time? The guitar, Leo started the guitar amplifier business in 1946, and then he filed a patent for the uh, electric guitar in 1948. And then the, the first electric guitar, solid body electric guitar, was put on the market in 1950. It was called the Esquire, which is essentially the same guitar as the Telecaster. The Telecaster itself was something that I saw when I took the pilgrimage to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. <laughs> and what struck me was that the Stratocaster seemed to be for the rock musicians and the Telecaster seemed to be more for the blues musicians. But from what I understand, technically, were they really that much different? Yeah, bring me champagne when I'm thirsty. That's a really great question because technically the Telecaster came out for the country western market and it was used by country western uh, musicians for you know many years until the early 60s when rock and roll came out. Now rock and roll they think they, they discovered it but really they it had a basis in country western. Uh, the Strat was invented with Leo and Freddie Travaris on the plant in Fullerton on Raymond. Uh, the funny is a funny story because Freddie actually was critical of Leo's amplifiers, and Leo asked the, the, the details. Freddie pointed them out, and, and Leo hired him on the on the spot. That his first day on work, Leo and Freddie invented the Stratocaster. So that's how it all kind of evolved. What is the difference between a Stratocaster and a Telecaster in terms of its its construction and sound? The the the, the Tele's a little more twangy. Um, it's just a different sound. It's really a preference. You know, Jimmy Page recorded all of Led Zeppelin One on a Telecaster, and yet the leads for uh, Stairway to Heaven were played with a Stratocaster. So it's just really dependent on which sound you want. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying the stairway. When she gets there, she knows If the stores are all closed With a word, she can get what she came Over at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I found myself standing in front of the original soundboard Jimi Hendrix used to uh, put together Are You Experienced? And my 11-year-old daughter, who had to be dragged kicking and screaming to this whole experience, was fascinated by it. And I explained to her, I said, my first radio console was about this size and I proceeded to explain to her that if you know one console you know them all and it just takes time to figure them out but Jimi Hendrix seemed to be the guy who made the Stratocaster that he played through that console the ultimate rock and roll guitar is that really what ultimately made it successful not so much the sound not so much the style it was the people who were holding it Mm, I, I haven't heard it that way, have you, Phyllis? No, I've never uh, heard it that way either. That's great. That's a, that's an interesting observation. I think it's a combination. I think it was the perfect storm where Leo's invention was 
the first on the market. It was uh, very well made. Phyllis knows Leo was passionate about quality. And yeah, the fact that uh, Jimi Hendrix and Elvis played a Strat, uh, that didn't hurt at all. But Jimi Hendrix was iconic. There's no question about it. Oh, and then we get to Bruce Springsteen. He had a Telecaster and then... Uh, I guess Buddy Holly had a, a Strat. Uh, Buddy Holly's name, uh, they misspelled his name on his gravestone, but they got his Stratocaster engraved right. I want to talk a little bit about amplifiers before we get back into guitars, because that's another really important part of this, because Fender, at, at the end of World War II, all the big bands had shrunk, uh, and we were moving into jazz was moving into bebop. And then there was this these smaller bands who had uh, the saxophone as the lead instrument because it was one of the things that, that you could play loud enough over the rest of, of, of the group. <laughs> and, and that's why the saxophone was such an important part in the late 1940s and early 1950s. The electric guitar while it had been invented back in the 1930s, still hadn't come to the fore when it came to the small combos. But it was it was the 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 refinement of the pickup and the refinement of the amplifier that allowed the guitar to step forward and actually have the guitars being heard over you know the guy bashing on the piano, the guy with the stand up bass, and the drum and the saxophone player. Have I got that right? I, I think you have. There were some great pioneers, and they were all here from Orange County. They were all friends. You're talking about Paul Bixby was a great pioneer. Les Paul and Leo and Les Paul and Paul Bixby were all good friends. Uh, the guys at Rickenbacker, Leo Fender worked at Rickenbacker just down in Santa Ana. They all collaborated and you're right, the electric guitar in terms of an acoustic, a modified acoustic guitar was invented as far back as the 30s. But Leo was at a, a war bond dance. Maybe you can tell the story. Uh, you can tell better than me. Okay. Well, because Leo loved electronics and people knew that, and he had his radio shop here in Fullerton. During World War II, we used to have bond, uh, war bond dances here in town. And they, they came to Leo and asked him if he would uh, put up the electrical lights up, uh, bring some electricity in. They wanted to set it up to have a dance. Uh, and so he started doing that. And they did it over and over again. And one day, um, normally he didn't stick around, but this particular day he stayed uh, and sat down at the end of the bandstand there and was uh, watching the musicians play. And they were they played big, big band music, really big band music. And he was watching and watching. And, and in the front row were some uh, guitar players and uh, he kept his eye on them, and for a reason I don't know, he never really mentioned to me, but he felt drawn to them, and he spoke to them afterwards about, uh, did you have enough sound, and did all these kind of things, and they said, you know what, we play our hearts out like everybody else, and nobody can hear us, and the next day, Leo got a hunk of wood, dug out all the insides and put some electrical stuff in there and started figuring out a way to amplify that guitar. 
From what I understand, too, within the guitar community, the Fender in the early days got no respect, much like Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> the, the, the guitar manufacturers were huge on the the acoustic side, and that that was critical, like a Stradivarius sort of thing. How did he get over that psychological hurdle that comes with taking a plank of wood, mitering out what you needed, and slapping in the electronics? Because he knew in his heart he was going to make something that was going to be good and these uh these guitar players that he watched really affected him uh in that he felt so sorry that any no guitar player should not be heard he loved guitar players and he wanted them to have the best piece of instrument he could get and at that point his uh his creations were what was going to take care of that lax in in um, publicity for the uh, guitar player in the big bands. Yeah, and I'll just add that you're absolutely right in your observation. People called Leo's guitars boat paddles. They laughed at him. Yeah. They scoffed at him. Leo was a very steady, uh, emotionally just solid guy. He didn't really express a lot of anger or mm -hmm. complaining. He just kind of plowed ahead. And he went past the laughing and, and the same, what's so funny, the exact pe same people that were laughing at him were the same people that took credit for it when it got successful. So <laughs> Le Leo would That's just say, true, yeah. hey, Leo would just say, you know, whatever, I've got the patents. <laughs> <laughs> So, Phyllis, help me understand here. You know, you think about the rock and roll bad boy with the guitar, and here you are describing sock hops and a guy with a glass <laughs> eye who never actually played guitar in the first place. How did you two come together? Uh, well, it was sort of a blind date. Uh, Leo's wife, Esther, had passed away about a year before that, and uh, he was not dealing well with his uh, with his uh, sorrow. And I had been in an organization called Parents Without Partners. And as the president of the group, uh, it was my job to write articles for a newsletter. And being on the silly side, I wrote some articles on that we're responsible for our own happiness. You can't expect your dog or your kids or your church or whoever to make you happy. You have to make yourself happy. So George and Lucille Fullerton, George was Leo's uh, worker, uh, part vice president, and we went to the same church and they read these articles and they said, do you think you could loan them to us? We'd like to show Leo uh, and see if we can bring him out of this depression that he's in. So they showed them to him and, and he laughed and uh, they said, would you come over and talk to him some night? He's at our house every night for dinner because he, he had no family after Esther died. And so I said, sure. So they uh, I got there just about time dinner ended and uh, they walked us into the den and Leo sat in this big chair and I sat on an ottoman. And all of a sudden, George and Lucille turned around and left. And I went, excuse me, excuse me. I had never <laughs> met this man. I didn't know a thing about him. All I know was he was sad. And we so we sat there and talked and talked. And all of a sudden, he starts weeping, just huge sobs. And he said, I, 
I should have done more for Esther. I should have done more. And and he did that. And we met together three times uh, at their home. And each time he wept less and he wept less. And finally, George and Lucille said, well, as long as he's comfortable with you now, uh, why don't you come and have dinner with us? And I went, okay, that's fine. But they said, uh, you know, when Leo wants to eat, he don't want, he doesn't want to talk. He just wants to eat. And I said, that's okay. I'll talk to you guys. And so we sat down and Leo started talking to me and he talked to me and talked to me. And I looked down to the table and George and Lucille were laughing like crazy. And I said, why are you laughing? And they said, if we knew this last year that all we had to do was put a blonde next to him and he would be happy, (laughs) we'd have done it a year ago. And so that was our first kind of, we were all sitting around the table laughing. And uh, that was the beginning. And we had our first date in December at a Christmas party that at the uh, a Palomino Club in Los Angeles. And then we were married in September of the next year. So. Did, did his connection to the world of rock and roll and his celebrity status within the musician community play any role in this? It sounds to me the furthest thing possible from a, a 21st century Tinder date. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know who he was. I mean, uh, George and Lucille. We got together many times after church to have breakfast or something. And 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 George once in a while would say, "Well, Leo at work did this or this." Or I had put no picture to him. Uh, I didn't know he was famous. I didn't know he was famous for several years after we got married. <laughs> I just I just knew he was really busy. And uh, that he worked a lot uh, because his celebrity, he didn't wear a badge that said, I'm Leo Fender. He did everything not to show people who he was. He wanted his instruments to be known. He didn't want himself to be known. I have a, a couple of questions back to the, the business of, of, of music. We talk about the Telecaster, we talk about the Stratocaster. One guitar that seems to be missed by far too many people, as far as I'm concerned, is the Fender Precision Bass. Because a lot of people were still playing the stand-up bass, which was, everybody was playing it. And how did, how did Leo end up deciding that we need an electric bass? <laughs> Basically, uh, Leo... Uh, from all intents and purposes, was constantly creating. I mean, you guys would be on a cruise, and he at the captain's table, and Leo would be drawing a new guitar on a on a cloth napkin. And you get mad at him, and he 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 just go back to the cabin where he could design guitars. And and you're absolutely right. At the time of Leo, before Leo Fender, all the basses were the big gigantic thing, and, and the idea just popped in his head, and he designed it undisputed. I mean, there's there's controversy about. Where the electric guitar came from, I'm very aware of. But with the bass guitar, unquestionably, Leo Fender invented that. He was the first. It's just an idea that popped in his head. It seems like a fairly obvious one because, first of all, dragging a, a stand-up bass around was a big pain. Secondly, secondly, it, it all comes down to this issue of amplification. You you would really have to pluck those strings really, really hard to be heard over you know the drummer and the guitar player and the piano player and the saxophone player. So it made sense to have... Um, 
you know, apply the principles of an electric guitar to an electric bass. Now, there, there was a period of time in the 1960s where the company fell in hard times. Is that when CBS came in and bought everybody? CBS bought Fender in 1965, and maybe you can explain why, you know, when Leo was uh, had the staph infection. Right. Uh, Leo got to feeling ill, not necessarily sick, but just a little bit ill, and he didn't have the energy. I didn't know him that. This is just what he told me, um, that he just didn't feel like the same person. And so he's, and he really didn't want to go to doctors, but finally he did. And they said he had a very, very, very serious staph infection. And unless something was done immediately, he was going to die. And uh, he didn't do anything immediately. He thought about it for a little while. And then he realized that, um, he and Esther had no children. Uh, Leo had one sister that would not be able to handle all of his uh, company, all of Fender company, if he should die. And so uh, he finally gave in, went to the hospital. He said the, uh, the IV was huge. It was two great, great big syringes. And they said, well, this will either kill you or it's going to heal you. And um, he was pretty sick for a while, but then he got better and he got better and he got better and then he was well. But in the meantime, he had sold the company. Yeah, so he had sold the company to Fender while he was on his way to the hospital because he knew Esther, his first wife, couldn't handle a company that size. And so uh, the deed was done and uh, he stuck around for a while, worked with them. But uh, I think deep down he was kind of sorry, but he did it for the right reasons. He was trying to protect Esther. We have a uh, listener of the podcast uh, who's written in with a question. Uh, Greg uh, points out that Yoko Ono has all of John Lennon's key Beatles guitars. He'd like to know if you have any of those highly sought-off 1950s uh, Telecasters, Stratocasters in a private collection. Did Leo keep (laughs) any of them for himself? Do you have them? (laughs) Leo never brought one guitar home. What? He, we have, there has never been one that he brought into this house, not even just to show me or show a family member or something. Uh, fortunately, I have a couple in a collection that the Fender Company and G&L have given me, special ones. But Leo brought none because he said, why should I bring you something today when tomorrow I'm going to make something that's better? And he, that was his way of thinking. Tomorrow okay, what, better. Some of those fenders from the late 50s and early 1960s are worth more than their weight in gold to collectors. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's, I know a couple of guitar collectors who, you know, there's a starburst, sunburst finish from 57 that they just rhapsodize about forever and ever and ever. What is it about certain years and if we go back 50, 60 years, what is it about those guitars from those years that make them so special? Well, uh, part, of, part of the reason was 
Leo was in between companies and doing things and maybe he's going to die. And uh, they were sort of wonder years. And uh, anything that that's unusual, something's happening, um, you want to be in on it. I wish Leo had been in on it. Uh, but uh, Randy knows more about that type of thing than I do because... Jeez, Mr. Mr. Know-it-all. <laughs> well, not really, but, <laughs> but I do know that uh, you're absolutely right. Those those old uh, Telecasters and the Nocasters and the Esquire, the Broadcaster, <clears throat> they were made in a little shop at 107 South Harbor Boulevard here in Fullerton, and it's a very small facility. I mean, the owner of the building today has shown Phyllis and I Leo's office. It was a very small room, and they just yeah. didn't have the the ability to produce a lot of guitars, so they're, they're obviously very rare because... It, you know, this was this, the genesis of the whole revolution with modern music, and it started in a, with a very humble beginnings. What's so funny is that Leo expanded into the Raymond building where the Stratocaster was was invented, and he built the building in modules because he wasn't sure that the business was going to succeed, and so he wanted to lease it out to individual tenants in case his guitar business failed. That business didn't fail, it exploded. But getting back to your question, there were there were relatively very few guitars built in the very beginning because Harbor Boulevard, that facility was very small and we're in the infancy of the guitar revolution. This may have been a little bit before your time, of course, Phyllis, but the first <laughs> guitars, the Bakelite, the, 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 the material on the plastic was literally baked in the kitchen oven? He, Leo was the kind of guy that was very innovative. It wasn't beneath him to do that and, and fix the machines with the screwdrivers. In fact, he when my dad worked with Leo, Leo was always the guy on the ground fixing the machines. He, he was a very hands-on guy. He was very innovative, and he would do anything it took to get the, the result he wanted. One of the things that we've seen over the last decade, 15 years, is a decline in electric guitar sales. We've seen them go down by a third or more over the last while. And that makes me very sad because I, I think what we have is a generation today that was brought up on the Internet and handheld devices like iPads and uh, new instruments like uh, the Ableton uh, that don't require the kind of dedication and practice that an electric guitar does. And and I worry a little bit that that we're losing a generation to these new electronic devices. Yeah, I, I worry about the same thing. And you're, you're absolutely right. I have four kids and, and they, they say, why learn the guitar? Because I got these apps that can get the drums and the guitar and everything I want. The sound, the difference is you don't have the authenticity that you get with Eric Clapton or, or Jimi Hendrix or Jimmy Page. I mean, come on. And it is a lot of work, but you know, uh, this technology and the video games, uh, unfortunately, it's had that effect. I, I, I worry about the same thing. We did have the same problem in the early 1980s when synthesizers became very cheap and very powerful. And everybody was saying that, oh, no, 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 the, the, the guitar is dead because now it's all about keyboards and things that you can program. But uh didn't turn out that way. So <laughs> There was a keytar. Right? Oh, <laughs> the keytar. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, I'm hoping that this is just a phase as people realize, as you say, that the, there's an authenticity to a guitar that, uh, to, to an instrument that requires, you know, a, you know, plucking real strings and creating actual vibrations um, and, and requiring certain contortions of the body to make 
the thing sing. Very well said. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And we need more guitar heroes, quite honestly. I mean, I, I idolized Jimmy Page. I remember when uh, rock stars came through the plant all the time, and I was, I was begging my dad to introduce them, but it wasn't their style. But we need, we need a, a new era of rock, rock heroes to come along. But the technology component, you know, Phyllis, you pointed out that he was always trying to, to put more and more into it uh, and, and perfect it and take it to the next level. But it seems that at some point we stopped jamming more crap into guitars. Uh, how come they don't have the foot pedals built in anymore? How come my, my, my new guitars aren't Bluetooth and synchronized with my iPhone? What is it about the guitar that uh, the, the, the musician said, you know what? I'm good with this level. Boy, that's a loaded question. Sure is. <laughs> uh, no, I just think that you have to find the level where you can do it best. You just, you know, it's it's individuals that do it. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't know why they do it, but that's just the way they are. And... Uh, do you know why they do it? You know, LP records are making a comeback. I have a daughter who's 21, and now she's into vinyl. You know, it's going to come around where this generation realizes that all this technology stuff is not authentic. We want to get back to real stuff. As you said really well, in fact, I'm going to probably lift your line, the, the real vibration. Rather than an artificially, technically generated vibration, there is a difference, and you can feel it. And music's all about how you feel. It's really interesting. I'm a docent at uh, Fullerton Downtown Museum, and they have a Fender Gallery there. Yep. And I do a lot of public speaking uh, about Leo and his things. And there's more and more young people that I'm meeting. Mothers are bringing their kids in to say hello, and maybe I'll sign their guitar or their shirt or something. And the young people are saying, this is so much fun. This is so much fun. And I'm hoping that would kind of spread a little bit. Uh, but again, like as Randy just said, they need somebody to fashion themselves out, out of uh, somebody to show them the way. When you are at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland and you see the creation of your late husband, what goes through your mind? I wish I had known he was famous and what he was famous for earlier in our marriage. I really didn't know that he was that kind of famous. And it wasn't until a long time later. And it I would have cherished him even more knowing what he had done for the music industry. And got a whole bunch of backstage passes. <laughs> Oh, we never went to programs. We never went to musical programs unless they, when I sing in the choir at church, that was about as musical as we got. If you could have one guitar from the entire line of Fenders, Strats, Broadcasters, Telecasters, Jazzmasters, Precision Basses, everything, what would you have? Oh, I think I know Randall knows what he would want. <laughs> well, go. Uh, I, I think the one, the, the the Blondie was was named after this this lady here. So maybe serial number 0001 Blondie uh, named after Phyllis. <laughs> I wonder how much that would be worth today. We'll never know. <laughs> Do you know who has it? Me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Really? <laughs> That's fantastic. Phyllis, Randy, thank you so much for your time. This is a lot of fun. Great, great stuff. Thank Thanks, you for guys. being interested in it. Oh, very interested. Pre-order a copy of The Quiet Giant Heard Around the World by Randy Bell on Amazon, and Phyllis Fender will personally sign your copy. The book hits store shelves in time for Christmas. Thanks, guys. <laughs> want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats swag store. We got a gadget to give away. Yes, we do. Now, how happy are you with your Google Home? I'm happy with it. My wife hates it because she doesn't understand how to communicate with it, but I really like it. I'll say, okay, Google, play me some jazz music beginning with Miles Davis so I can make dinner. And there it comes. Uh, at Google, hey, okay, Google, tell me what the forecast is. Okay, Google, tell me what the traffic is on the way into downtown Toronto. Okay, Google, uh, what is 450 mils in uh, ounces? That kind of thing. And it works great. So for about 180 bucks, you can buy one of these things, or you can be a member of the world's worst intern program by supporting the show with a donation every time we put out an episode. And that puts a raffle ticket in the bin, virtually speaking, for you to win anything that we give away on the big show. So instead of dropping 180 bucks, you could have just dropped $1, as Geeks and Beats listener Joshua Hillerup has done. Congratulations. He gets the Google Home? He gets the Google Home. Okay, great. You'll love it. It's you know what it's really easy to set up uh, in terms of your your home Wi-Fi. I, I, I you have to download an app, use it on your phone, and it uh, helps you locate your your home Wi-Fi system. And then basically that's it. I think it took me about ninety seconds to set it up. Fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a cool thing. So another way that you can actually support the show and actually gets us to talk about you is by pledging 25 bucks. That makes you a co-producer on the big program. We'll uh, put your name on the album art and you can print it off, frame it and hang it in your mother's basement. It's a great way to say thank you. As Mike Tweedy had done, he fired me off a message via Patreon, which is how we do all of this, saying, hey, I noticed last week you guys didn't have a co-producer. What about next week? And I said, hey, it's the Fender episode. If you want to be on perhaps the most popular episode we've ever done, by all means, open your wallet and that's exactly what he did yeah I, I thought the porn episode would be the biggest episode but i think this one is actually going to be much better because phyllis fender was was she's extraordinary so thank you so much mike uh, for helping out on, on the big show if you go to geeksandbeats.com click on the support the show link there's a bunch of different options and the great thing about us using patreon is that you can set a lifetime limit so we if we put out 400 episodes we're not going to ding you for 400 bucks or whatever it is you choose you can make it more than a dollar and that puts you in the raffle bin for more than one uh, ticket to, as it were so geeksandbeats.com help us out we appreciate that by the way you mentioned uh, the google home how much you like it and i'm waiting for uh, the siri home pod because I want to control my smart home. I figured out how to control it with my smartphone, with my iPhone. I don't need a Google Home Pod. I don't need an Apple Home Pod. I'm sorry, what are you doing? Okay, so here, check this out. Okay. So this is, what, what, what do you do? You're using uh, Apple Home? I'm using Apple HomeKit tied into yeah. my existing Insteon system. Remember I was saying that Insteon yeah, yeah. is the old system and every, one out of three of my, my switches blows uh, and, and I got to replace them every couple of years. The company Insteon has put out a HomeKit compatible hub. So the actual switches are not HomeKit compatible but because the brain that talks to them is, I can now go something like this. Hey Siri, turn off the office lights. 
waiting, waiting, <laughs> waiting. Wait, now it's not waiting. Just a second, it says. Thinking about it. Oh. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.